Hello, my name is Ian Corey. This is Land Informs Radio. This is a unscripted, semi-improvised follow-up episode to the last episode in this feed, wherein, along with Sadu Anna Dollingham of the band Semaphore and Andrew Noseworthy of People Places Records, I worked over some thoughts that I had about the progressive heavy metal band Between the Barry to Me. That podcast was a lot of fun. I think we had a really good conversation. I really enjoyed having it. But we recorded that podcast prior to the release of their latest album, Colors 2, which came out on August 20th, a few days ago, as of this recording. And I figured that if I'm going to spend an hour of your time talking about why I maybe am not that into the band's newer music, I should do my due diligence and report back with my feelings about their latest record in the event that it is good and uh, refutes any of my previous criticisms. And uh, so I'm happy to report that, yes, it's a good record. Colors 2 is really good. <laughs> it, it really, uh, I don't want to say it took me by surprise because I feel like that is uh, sort of condescending to a bunch of musicians that are way, way better than I am at what they do. And so I wouldn't say surprised is the right word. But yes, I, I positively invigorated by the experience of listening to the record. It's kind of an uncanny listen at times because of how much it builds on and reworks and repurposes pieces of the original album Colors from 2007. The first few songs in particular follow almost like beat by beat the same structure of the first two songs on Colors. And that's... <laughs> As someone who's listened to Colors quite a bit, that was a really strange experience, but a, a really exciting one. And uh, I think it was very cleverly done, very creative. And then from there, the record goes on to a whole bunch of new material and new ideas and concepts. But throughout, there was a, a really clear sense of songwriting, of having each song have its own individual hook and its own individual arc that didn't rely on some of the super structural elements that we tried to justify their later albums as being focused on in the podcast uh, from a few weeks ago now. So yeah, it, it kind of does almost everything that we as a, a panel suggested that we wanted to hear more of from them. You know, we wanted more breakdowns. We wanted more, concise songwriting we wanted more clear and like focused songwriting less riff salad less uh sort of cheap knockoffs of genres and more sort of earnest attempts to to change genres in, in interesting ways and i think that the band really went over the uh you know over the top in the best way they did they over delivered they did exactly what i could have asked uh while paying tribute to an album that means a lot to me 
from my teenage years. Of course, there are some moments that don't quite work for me. The degree to which the closing track attempts to emulate the structure and sensation of the closing track of the original colors titled White Walls, I think doesn't do it uh, doesn't do it any favors. Um, that's one of the best progressive metal songs of all time, and to so uh, explicitly put a new song up against that um, for comparison, it doesn't quite work. I, I don't love the closing track. I think it's a bit long-winded and a bit anticlimactic, but I appreciate the effort uh, quite a bit. And so I, I wanted to check in and say, yes, despite the criticisms that I levied at the band in the last podcast, they more than proved that they were capable of, uh, well, proving me wrong. And they did that quite well. So let the record show that I am more than happy to give praise when praise is due. So that's what I did this weekend. Listen to the new Between the Barrier to Me. Listen to some other records too. I might get into that at another time. But the experience reminded me a lot of something that I actually did the previous weekend, which was that I watched the movie Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 colon Thrice Upon a Time. Uh, Getting into exactly what that movie's deal is would take a whole other podcast, which as it so happens already exists under the name The Human Instrumentality Podcast, which I record with my friend and former Lambda Forms radio guest, Joseph Schaefer. You can check that out in its own feed. But the short version is that the movie is the conclusion to a four-part retelling of a cult classic anime TV series from the 90s that ended in a baffling and abstract way that pissed off a lot of fans. This movie is supposed to be the final piece of that retelling that tells the story, quote-unquote, correctly, whatever that means. I don't particularly like this framing because I don't think it actually does the uh, the rebuild films, which is what this later retelling of Neon Genesis Evangelion is titled. I don't think it does it any favors to, to frame it this way because saying that this is the story told correctly kind of implies that it's supposed to supplant the first telling of the story and erase that first telling and say this is the definitive version. Instead, it's actually something way more similar to Colors 2 in that it is using a lot of the same parts, following a lot of the same beats, following a lot of the same structure, but instead of supplanting, it's having a conversation with the original. And it is filling that structure with a ton of new ideas and pushing the story into new and interesting directions. They also both have a bit of a a meta streak to them without ever fully breaking the fourth wall, uh, which is something that's kind of not really even possible with music to begin with. That's a really heady subject. I want to put a pin in that so that uh, if anyone wants to hear me try and explain how that works, I'm happy to try and do that at a later time, but I don't don't really have the CPU to do that right now. Um, So without ever breaking the fourth wall, both between the barrier to me and director Hideki Anno of the who heads the whole Evangelion thing, they both acknowledge the creative process and the implications of the creative process kind of in the text itself for both of these. Uh, so for between the barrier to me, there's like a lot of in addition to you know the winking references to the previous album, 
there's a lot of talk of a, a sort of writer character in the lyrics and they even sort of name drop themselves on the album, which I, I think is always kind of a, a sort of tacit acknowledgement that there's some sort of porous element between the reality of the album and the reality of the world, if that makes sense. And Evangelion has always had a, a bit of a postmodern fourth wall breaking element to it in that it is a, a franchise and a story that is sort of consciously at the end and in all of its forms, when it ends, it usually kind of goes up a few levels of reality in one way or another. And it was interesting to have both of these things kind of side by side. Cause I, I kind of got this sensation of watching one, the movie and listening to the other, the album that they're both kind of about the act of going back to something and trying to rework it and trying to retell it and trying to make it all make sense again. It's about the act of returning to something that you'd previously moved away from. Uh, and I find that really, really interesting as a creative exercise. Now, admittedly, I'm maybe a bit predisposed to be on board with the angle taken by both of these artists since those original works happen to mean a lot to me as well. So it, it definitely lends it. It's an easier sell if an artist wants to go back and revisit something that I frequently revisit myself, right? That kind of makes sense. And yeah, I mean, Neon Genesis Evangelion and Colors when I was 19, that was like all of the sort of stuff that I was interested in. <laughs> it could be contained in both of those two pieces of art. But I, they're not the only examples of this sort of returning to the scene of the crime, quote unquote, in modern popular culture. And I, I don't think that they're, um, and I think there's something uh, interesting to be learned um, about why artists do this and what that process pulls up, what that, that revisiting process pulls up. A few years ago, I actually got about 90% of the way to publishing a freelance article about the trend of metal musicians doing this in particular, um, sort of about the moment in the 2000s when heavy metal proper kind of had this commercial resurgence and a bunch of older bands reunited and started re-recording their older material, you know, with the kind of express purpose of like cashing in, but also, you know, updating these older eighties records with like modern two thousands production sound. Of course, now that it's been 20 years since that, those records sound just as dated <laughs> as the eighties ones, but that's, I, I digress. Uh, there have been some other interesting examples, um, that are maybe a bit more readily accessible to pop culture of this sort of returning to a previous work. Um, if you happen to be a Taylor Swift fan, for example, she's currently going through, a bunch of her older records that were released through a record label that now has moved the rights for these songs are now like moved hands, you know, through this conglomerization and corporatization process that a lot of music goes through. So she no longer has all of the songwriting credits. So she's re-recording the albums to have essentially um, the, the rights to her own music again, which I think is a, a worthwhile exercise just from a financial perspective. If that, if you're making that much money from your music, yeah, you kind of want to hold on to that. 
but I think it's also cool that she seems to be using it as like a chance to sort of artistically revisit those older songs. And that must be a really interesting process for someone who has so much more of a personal expressive approach in their lyrics. I, I imagine that that would be a pretty heavy thing to undertake to kind of, you know, revisit the emotional weight of what it means to have recorded a bunch of songs as a teenager, as someone in their early twenties, you know, all that sort of stuff coming back to that must be pretty heavy. I would imagine and maybe another example, if you're more of a movie person, I think you could sort of look at like Zack Snyder's justice league as an interesting example of this in that he didn't get to finish a particular movie the way that he wanted to. And then given the chance in sort of the similar way to Hideki Anno, returns to blow it out to absolutely absurd proportions and tell this, you know, massively uh, overblown version of a story that could have been much smaller. Now, admittedly, I have not seen Zack Snyder's Justice League because I have a no superhero movie moratorium on my movie going. Although I will admit that the Suicide Squad movie now featuring a big dumb shark guy, uh, that really speaks to me. And I, I am kind of curious about seeing that movie but the thing that's interesting to me about that is like in, you know in comparison to the neon genesis evangelion example as someone working within a clearly defined kind of schlocky genre to some degree and twisting it to make a more uh, autorist personal statement that's kind of cool and when i think about this sort of thing of like artists Coming back to an older work, I feel like the first criticism is that it's really self-involved, right? Like the first idea that pops into my head about like what what would what about this process would piss me off if I wasn't sort of inclined to be interested in it. The first criticism is that this is masturbatory. This is this is some sort of, you know, oh man, look at this thing that I did. Wasn't that cool? Let's do it again. Or cynical. It could be a cash grab thing. Like the way that I talked about the Taylor Swift records, you could totally look at that as this is just a business move. It's not an artistic move. I don't really think either of those are true, however. I think they can be, certainly. A lot of the metal records that I mentioned in that unpublished freelance piece, I do think are kind of cynical. I think that they are examples of artists trying to, how are you doing fellow kids it, and get in with like this new resurgent audience for the material. I don't think there was a lot of creative re-envisioning going on in a lot of those records. And yeah, if you're going to go back and you're going to record a new album based on or following up an older record, you should be doing something to it. You should be having a conversation with that previous piece of art rather than repeating yourself, right? But I think that that is a worthwhile exercise. I think it actually is really interesting for artists to engage with the art that they make given enough time, you know, like to be self-critical here, I don't think that my remix album from earlier this year really qualifies as the same thing. That is a way of like closing the door on something that I didn't get to realize and uh, correctly in the world. You know, I wanted to tour and I wanted to play shows for the Sisyphean material that didn't happen. Here's a remix album that kind of does that job. But this in the examples that we started with of colors Two and the rebuild of Evangelion is a bit different because those pieces of art have 
been part of the world for so long that at a certain point they kind of don't necessarily belong to the artists that originally created them entirely anymore. They've gone through this process of being refracted by the people that love it and the people that hate it and the people that have taken it and turned it into something that's part of their lives. Right. And so that allows that, that time and that public aspect of the art allows the artist to then return to those works almost as if they're covering something or almost as if they're adapting something that they didn't make because they may have made the original thing, but they didn't make the thing that was birthed from that thing. If that makes sense, like the album comes out and then there's the culture that exists around the album that fundamentally changes what the album is. Same thing with the TV show, like the way that the art is interpreted over time is you know, it can only happen if the art originally exists, but it is not the same thing. And the art does not survive unchanged by that process. And that means that instead of it being self-indulgent to return to these works, it's almost humbling because it forces the artist to contend not just with their own original vision and not just with the passage of time from who they were when the art originally came out to who they are now, but they have to contend with all of the memories and all of the history that has been injected into that work by other people. And so it requires them to speak not only to themselves from the past, but it requires them to speak to more directly to their audience. You know, I think that a lot of the time with art, the first experience of it you're kind of being told something like it's, it's being delivered to you and you need to learn how to interpret it or learn how to, you need to like get your feet wet a bit before you can actually kind of dive into it. And you need to the like the art will teach you how to experience the art. And that takes like a process of, of learning a new language essentially for every like new record or new show or new movie or whatever. But when an artist returns to a subject, returns to the scene of the crime, that work is actually not necessary in the same way. We actually both already know this language, like between the Barry to me and I know colors. They know it better than me, but I know parts of it that they don't know because I've listened to it as a fan. They can never have access to that. They can only have access to their experiences on the other side of that glass. But by saying, okay, now we're going to redo colors or we're going to do colors too. We're going to have some sort of other step beyond that. Then both of us are actually entering this new conversation kind of on much more equal footing. Like I can hear the colors references just as well as they can. They, you know, it'll still take time for me to pick all of them out. But when they throw a riff at me that I've listened to probably upwards of a hundred times, I will know it and I will sort of get a sense of what they mean by it when they use it in a new context or if they do something new and weird and interesting to it. I'm not hearing just like raw new information. I'm already halfway there because of that same history that both of us are kind of building on listener and musician simultaneously. Sometimes I feel like there's this 
pressure to constantly be having new thoughts, constantly be having like new ideas that are not iterative in some way that we have to constantly keep putting out like, okay, we did this thing. Now we're going to move on to this thing. We, we, we did a, now we have to do B. And there's something really cool about artists saying like, no, actually there's some, there's still more to say about a, maybe we have said B, but let's do a prime, you know, let's do a squared, however you want to put it. I think that there's a certain degree of humility in accepting that like one, maybe we actually don't have an infinitude of new ideas to bring to the table and maybe presuming that we do have an infinitude is doing the ideas that we do have a disservice by not digging into them to their fullest extent. And I think it's important for artists and, you know, I think it's important for everyone, frankly, to be self-reflective. And a really good way to impose that for an artist is to actually really critically engage with your own work, interrogate it, make other work that has a conversation with that work. That allows for so much more, you know, there's, there, I don't know, there's just nothing wrong with that to me. I think that there's something really kind of creatively invigorating about the concept of returning and digging deeper into something rather than constantly rushing into new shinier territory. Like, no, let's, let's take this thing seriously. Let's really chew over this. You know, I, I, you can kind of apply this even in like less obvious examples of, you know, there's only so many subjects that one person can feel so inspired to write songs about. And on the record that I'm working on now, I've actually kind of, you know, been joking around with my friend Jack, who I'm working on it with that it feels a lot like an album that I no longer have publicly available, but that I put out in the early part of the last decade that deals with a lot of really similar concepts, similar sort of thematic material, but they're worlds apart in terms of what the actual albums are like. They're just, it's just two different people, you know, doing it like a kid versus an adult. And I think the, the new album is way better and I'm, I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. But I, yeah, it's interesting to be like, oh yeah, you know, I, I kind of have written about all of this before, but I'm doing it better now. And I would be doing myself a disservice. And hopefully, I hope that you feel this way. I would be doing my listeners a disservice if I did not return to these ideas with full seriousness, full commitment, and the humility to know that I didn't say all of it right the first time and that there is something new to say about something old. That's all for now. We'll be back with more structured podcasts soon. I've got a few plans for some interviews that I want to set up, but it's been kind of a busy summer uh, because of this record and also because of the Human Instrumentality podcast. So I, I need a bit of time to regroup, but there will be more Land Reforms Radio heading your way soon. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.